All right, is everybody ready? We're about to get started. Um, welcome to the 2022 Fall Retreat. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Wiley. I've known Jonathan for a little while first um, because he was gracious enough to come to Louisville when I had to be out of town several times. So in fact, I think the first time we met was after he had met some of you already and served us when I was away. Um, but I've gotten to know Jonathan a little bit. I will let him introduce himself more fully. The joke I always tell when introducing somebody is that there are two rules to a good introduction. Um, one is to never ever say without further ado, and the second is to keep it short. So that's what I'm gonna do. Jonathan is a teacher at Covenant School in Huntington. He teaches humanities and theology there. Um, he got a PhD in Hebrew Bible from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. He has been assisting at Hope Anglican Church in Charleston, West Virginia, which is a church in our diocese. But um, he's being sent out indeed this Sunday to sort of officially start working at a church plant in Huntington called Church of the Resurrection. So please be in prayer for Jonathan and for that new work in Huntington to be an outpost of gospel proclamation. Um, let me say a quick prayer for us, and then I will give it over to Jonathan. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we do ask you to be Lord of our time this evening and tomorrow. Um, help us to learn about you. Help us to hear the good news you have for us. Remind us of your lordship and your grace and mercy and provision for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Pray for Jonathan as he teaches that you would fill him up and overflow him into us. We pray for this time and do so in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's uh, Father Dick said my name is Jonathan. I'm just tremendously grateful to be here. Um, I think it was June of last summer, maybe July of last summer, uh, that I was, I was down here to, uh, to stand in for a morning uh, when Nick was out of town. Uh, and I just love that you all were so kind to me and um, I felt right at home and um, it was uh, clear to me as the day is long that you all have a very good thing going here. You have a very uh, joyful community and um, uh, a beautiful, beautiful church, a beautiful service, uh, and, I, and I was just delighted to be here for that Sunday morning. Uh, I'm joined uh, this weekend by my beloved wife, Megan, who's back there and who probably would rather you not look at her because she doesn't want to be in the spotlight. Uh, and then also my beloved daughter, Lydia, who is 13 months old and whose voice you will no doubt hear tonight and throughout the day tomorrow. Um, her name is Lydia Shalom. Uh, and then lastly, uh, as uh, Father Nick mentioned, uh, I am the planting rector at Church of the Resurrection in Huntington right now. Um, so please do keep that, that work in your prayers. I, um, this isn't what you wanted me to come out here to tell you about, but I'm going to tell you about it just for like two minutes anyway. I, when Megan and I moved to Huntington, I had no desire to be a church planner. I was already in the ordination process. I was ordained a priest uh, about a year after we moved to Huntington. Um, but I did not see myself as a church planner because I didn't think that I had the, the entrepreneurial skills and all these other kinds of things that you typically hear about in the church planting literature. And uh, by... By the hand of God, here we, we find ourselves planting this church in Huntington, and I don't have a single shred of doubt that it's the right thing for us to be doing in this season. Um, a handful of folks started coming to us and saying, Jonathan, when are we going to plant an Anglican church? And I would say to them, you're a Presbyterian. You have no idea what you're talking about. You've never darkened the doorstep of an Anglican church with your shadow before. And so I just kind of blew them off or 
about a year, uh, and they kept asking three or four times, and they finally, one of them cut, cornered me one day with, a, with his cell phone and said, Jonathan, when are we starting an Anglican church? Let's put a day on the calendar. And there I was, uh, a priest of the church. How do, you, how do you get out of that corner when somebody's like, literally got their calendar out and demanding it? And so we, so we did. And, um, and I rejoice to say that the Lord has filled our hearts with a love for the city of Huntington, um, uh, a desire to see the gospel flourish there, a desire to see people uh, come to resurrection life there. Um, and, uh, and I rejoice to say that the Lord has brought people into our, our little uh, church plant. What do we have, Meg? I think about 20-ish adults, 25 adults, and 15 kids or so uh, when everybody comes. Um, so for somebody that's kind of a bookish guy and pretty introverted, that's, that feels like, like pretty, good, pretty good work that uh, that, that many people have uh, joined in uh, with us over the last 10 months or so. We started meeting it for evening prayer in January. Uh, and as Nick said, we will formally launch uh, on October 2nd. Bishop Julian, who's my bishop of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word, will come and make his first visit that day. And we'll baptize three children and uh, formally try to get this thing going. So, um, so please do keep us in your prayers. We're really excited about what the Lord's doing there. Um, and we just keep asking for, for, for more growth, more growth numerically and more growth in faith, hope, and love. Uh, so we, we do uh, plead for your prayers. Uh, just a few uh, things that you might find helpful to know about me as we jump into uh, our study of the ancient world and archaeology. So as uh, Father Nick mentioned, I spent uh, several years up in Wisconsin uh, working on a Ph.D. in Hebrew Bible. Um, from a very, very early age, I think about 10, 10th grade or so, um, I had this clear sense that uh, it was the Lord's call in my life to dedicate my whole life to studying and teaching the Bible. Um, I, it wasn't a vision. It wasn't like an audible sound. It wasn't like Samuel in First, in first Samuel 3 where he hears, you know, Samuel, Sam, my son, and all these kinds of things. It wasn't anything mystic like that. It was just this profound sense. It's like abiding interest in Scripture, especially the Old Testament uh, and the ancient world. And I, it just became clear to me at a, at a young age that that was what the Lord had wanted me to do. And so I went from, from high school to Wheaton College where I studied ancient languages and biblical archaeology at Wheaton. Uh, met some professors there who are to this day friends and mentors of mine uh, 15 years after I left Wheaton and then from Wheaton went on to uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison where I uh, uh, endured, maybe that's a good word, PhD studies uh, in, uh, in Hebrew Bible. Um, and those studies were rigorous and trying and taxing in all kinds of different ways, but I am so grateful for them, uh, for the grit that they required and the... Um, the tenacity that they cultivated in me, and above all, for the opportunity to live this sort of monastic life for the better part of a decade, studying ancient texts, and in particular the Bible, and to just really devote myself uh, in a very holistic kind of way to that, to that study uh, was, a, was a blessing. So I am primarily a Bible scholar, insofar as I'm a scholar at all. I'm mostly a wannabe scholar, kind of a hack, but uh, insofar as I'm a scholar at all, I'm primarily a Bible guy, okay? Uh, but I have always tried to... Um, to be the kind of Bible scholar that reads the Bible within its ancient context. Okay? There are all kinds of different uh, ways that one might approach the Bible. You might be a, a, a biblicist who really focuses on like systematic theology. You might be a biblicist who focuses on historical theology. I tried to be a biblicist that focused on history and culture. Right? I wanted to understand the Bible uh, in the world that it was uh, composed and produced and transmitted. And it's in sort of original context in so far as we can understand that context. And so to that end, while I always prioritized textual study of the Old Testament, I tried to complement that to the greatest extent that I possibly could with archaeology. 
And so because I was a career student for the first half of my life, I think I was in school for the better part of 30 years, I think it was 27 or 28 years, so endure really was the right word. Um, starting in 2006 and almost every summer thereafter until 2019, because I had summers off on the academic calendar, I would go to Israel and excavate. Uh, and believe it or not, it was actually cheaper for me to go overseas and be on the dig than it was to stay home because I would just, I wouldn't have to pay rent or any of these kinds of things. So the Lord just opened these doors for me and, and I walked through them. Um, and so starting in 2006, I dug at a, at a site called tel uh, which is mentioned a handful of times in the Old Testament in, in Joshua. Uh, and then I also studied that same summer at a site called tel Safi, which is probably almost certainly biblical Gath, a Philistine city. And then starting in 2007 all the way up through 2016 with maybe one or two years that I missed. I stayed home one year to study uh, for my PhD exams. But for basically every, every year for the next 10 years after that, I studied at a site near and dear to my heart called Ashkelon, which is a Philistine city right on the Mediterranean coast, about eight miles or so north of Gaza City. Uh, so if you ever follow the news when uh, rockets start getting launched in southern Israel, very often Ashkelon will be named as a target because it's, it's the first really large city um, it's the closest large city to Gaza. So I excavated there for about 10 years um, and got deeply interested in Philistine archaeology and the, and the, and the uh, relationship between Philistines and Israel. Uh, you should ask me what the best thing I ever found in Ashkelon was, and I will tell you that it was my wife, who sits right there. Um, so we met on a dig uh, in, what, 2013, I think it was. We met, we met over there and got married in 2018. Um, and so archaeology has played a big role in our, in our lives. And then in 2019, um, the excavations at Ashkelon uh, concluded, and we went with our whole staff up to the north of Israel, uh, near um, in, in the Galilee, and we excavated for a summer at Tel Shimron. Uh, so, um, so again, I'm, I'm mainly a Bible person, but I try to be a Bible person that reads the Bible within its ancient historical and cultural context. And so that's what I kind of want to do this morning. Um, my studies have, have uh, primarily focused on the integration of texts and artifacts. So I want to read the Bible in the light of what we can deduce about the ancient world from archaeological excavations. And starting tomorrow, especially, that's what I want to try to do with you. Just try to give you some snapshots about how that might bear fruit in your reading of Scripture. Um, but I also have these abiding questions because I'm a, a Christian and a priest of the church. I have these abiding questions about the doctrine of Scripture, right? Because I've spent so much time like thinking carefully about what the texts mean and how they were composed and how they were transmitted and what's this relationship between the divine inspiration of Scripture and yet there's also this clear human component in the actual writing and transmitting of Scripture. Uh, so I'm very interested in these kinds of interplays between the divine and human authorship of Scripture. Um, and so those are some of my... Um, some of, some of my like, kind of Pandora's boxes, as it were. I'd love to just talk about doctrine of Scripture questions uh, until the cows come home. But that's not what my task here this, uh, this weekend is. As I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, Father Nick. Too late for now. Yeah, these, these talks are what they are at this point. Although I got tonight, so. As I understand it, my task uh, this evening and then for three more talks tomorrow is to discuss and defend the reliability of Holy Scripture with reference to archaeology. Does that seem pretty close? Kind of what you were envisioning? Okay. Uh, so to discuss and to defend the reliability of Holy Scripture, particularly with reference to archaeology. Uh, another way of getting at that task uh, might be to put it like this, that my task is to consider with you how, or in some cases even whether, Archaeology dovetails with biblical studies. What's the relationship between the material record, pots, and bones and architecture and all these other kinds of things that we might dig out of the ground and the biblical text. 
Uh, because I'm an Old Testament person, and that's my bread and butter, and it's what I know the most about, and it's where I, um, it's the source of my training, I'm going to limit my focus primarily to the Old Testament. I hope that's okay with you. It's not that I don't think the New Testament is boring or uninteresting or doesn't matter. It obviously matters supremely. Right? Uh, but for me, um, well, I'll just cue you in on a little secret. For me, after like Alexander the Great, archaeology just gets really boring. Because like after Alexander the Great in 333 B.C., Everything is just like giant and made out of concrete and it's there and you can't get through it and what else do you need to know, right? It's just, it's just not, it's, to me it just loses its fun. Uh, so I, I am primarily going to limit my focus to the Older Testament uh, since that's what I know and, and, and find uh, particularly interesting. Uh, and within that I'm actually going to limit my focus um, to basically what's called the, the Late Bronze Age and Iron Ages. So from roughly 1600 B.C., down to, let's say, like 535 or 530 BC. So from what we might say, like the, uh, there she is right there. Okay. Maybe she'll be a singer one of these days or something. Um, so from the, from the time when Israel, uh, in terms of biblical chronology, would have been uh, making its way down into Egypt uh, until the time of the Babylonian exile and then the very beginning of the return under the new Persian Empire. Okay, if, that's, uh, if you have that timeline in your head. So that's basically the, the era that I feel the most comfortable in. Um, as we approach this task of thinking about uh, the reliability of Holy Scripture with reference to archaeology, I would like tonight, uh, with your blessing and approval, to, uh, to comment on two things. Uh, really more of a theoretical uh, nature than perhaps even an archaeological one. Those two things are... Um, the nature of archaeology on the one hand, and this question of reliability on the other. Okay? So as I take up this task of uh, discoursing with you about the reliability of Holy Scripture with reference to archaeology, there are really two things there that I think we need to unpack tonight before we make progress tomorrow in getting uh, kind of more into the details. One of them is to think through, well, what is archaeology for? What can we get from archaeology? What's it useful for? I want, to, I want to come back to that uh, toward the end of this talk this evening. Uh, and then secondly, and actually uh, I'm gonna do, chronologically I'm going to do this first, I want to think through um, this question of, of reliability, right? And where does Scripture get its reliability? And to set up that question, I want to start um, by thinking just a little bit about how archaeology um, came into its own, came into existence as an academic discipline, okay? I hope that doesn't sound too esoteric to you, but I think it's helpful to get our heads around that just so we can get a, um, just a little bit of a sense for what archaeology can do and what it can't do. Does that make sense? Feel free to raise your hands and ask questions anytime. I'm totally, I teach teenagers, so I'm totally happy to be interrupted. It's just, it's a day in the life. Okay, so here's a broad outline of my, uh, of my talk this evening. It basically breaks down into three things, and if I have time at the end, I might tack on a fourth one. If I don't, I'll just tack it on to the beginning of the second one tomorrow, and that's going to be totally fine. First thing I'd like to do this evening is to discuss when and why archaeology was born as an academic discipline. Okay? It's not as old as you would think it is. The material is, of course, old, but the study of the material is actually not that old. Okay? And it's helpful to just think about, well, what prompted the birth of archaeology as a discipline? So I want to start there. Um, Second, after we do that, I would like to uh, use that first conversation to spin off this second thing, which is, as I mentioned, to, to uh, comment on this question of the reliability of, of Scripture. What do we mean by that, the, the reliability of Scripture? And then finally, 
I would like to raise and try briefly to address the question of what is archaeology good for? What can we expect it to do and what should we not expect it to do? Okay? Um, in that part of the talk, I will identify three basic things that I think we can reasonably expect from archaeology. Um, and then each of the three sessions tomorrow, we'll try to flesh out those three basic things. Does that make sense? So I'm going to list three things at the end today. And then I got three more sessions tomorrow, and the three sessions tomorrow will take, each one will take one of those three things and kind of develop that. That's my, that's my sort of in, my mental vision here for, for how this is all going to unfold. Okay. Questions so far? Am I going too fast? Uh, so the first part, on the rise of archaeology as an academic, and I might even say a quasi-theological discipline. On the rise of archaeology is an academic discipline, even a quasi-theological one. Um, archaeology as an academic discipline came to life in the mid-19th century. The first archaeological expedition that I'm aware of was something like 1860. Okay, there might have been some stuff a little bit before that, with some people kind of dabbling in, in uh, cuneiform texts and, or hieroglyphic texts and so forth. But the, the, the move toward the Orient, right, toward places like Iraq and Iran and Israel and uh, modern-day Syria and Egypt, uh, to, to go out there and excavate, to dig these trenches in the ground and collect pottery and all these other kinds of things, the first we really see of that is in the middle part of the 19th century, around 1850, 1860, somewhere right in there, Civil War era. And I can't help but ask the question, well, why? Why did, why did that academic move to kind of give birth to this new science, maybe that's a little too generous to call it a science, but this new field of archaeology, why then? Uh, as Nick mentioned, I... I'm a humanities and theology teacher at a classical Christian school, which means that I, what pays the bills is I get to sit around a big, beautiful, wooden seminar table with teenagers, and I read great books. Like today, I, or yesterday, I spent uh, an hour reading Augustine's Confessions, and then I spent an hour reading uh, Erasmus's Praise of Folly, and then I spent an hour reading Machiavelli's The Prince, right? And I can't help but notice that in 1860, that's when somebody decided that it would be a good idea to go to the Middle East and start digging stuff up. Augustine loved the Bible. Why did archaeology never occur to Augustine? Jerome loved the Bible, a contemporary and a friend of Augustine. Why did it occur to Jerome? He did move to Israel so they could learn Hebrew, right? He moved from, I think it was Italy. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. He moved from Italy, I think, over to Bethlehem so that he could get a, a Jewish tutor to teach him Hebrew so that he could read the Old Testament in its original language. It never occurred to him to see one of these mounds of ruins and start digging stuff up, right? So it never occurred to Thomas Aquinas, right, in the 1200s to dig stuff up. Why did it finally occur to people in the mid-19th century to start digging up artifacts? Okay? I want to come back to that question. Um, well, that's really a question I want, to, I want to get to now. I think the answer to that question has to unfold in two broad stages. Okay? And this is a little bit of a historical lesson, but I think it helps us to situate what people thought archaeology would do for them. But then I kind of want to challenge that notion just a little bit. Okay? The first thing I think that gave birth to the field of archaeology was the Renaissance. Okay, starting around 1500, uh, I mentioned the name Erasmus. To my mind, there's nobody that embodies the Renaissance more than Erasmus. I mean, this guy taught himself Greek. 
Uh, he traveled all the way around the, the, the European continent looking for Greek manuscripts so that he could compile the first ever critical edition of the Greek New Testament. He was trying to get back in touch with the New Testament that was actually composed. This whole program of the Renaissance is trying to go back to the sources, back to the sources, back to the classical Greco-Roman, and insofar as they could do it, the Hebrew and Aramaic sources of antiquity. It had never really occurred to people prior to the Renaissance to make, to make a concerted effort to really get in touch with the deep past, quite like it did in the Renaissance. Okay? So the Renaissance, as I said, begins around 1500, and at the risk of a huge oversimplification, right, the huge generalization, let me just propose that the Renaissance can be summed up in one phrase, ad fontes. Some of you, I saw a Latin textbook sitting right here. Somebody can t- translate what that meant. Ad fontes, what is that? Back to the sources, okay? Back to the sources. And so in the early 16th century, just a little bit before that actually too in some cases, there's this push to get back into deep antiquity, to get in touch with those civilizations and those texts and those people, right, from, uh, from deep antiquity. Um, and so people like Erasmus begin to compile a critical editions of, of the text. The other key name that you would want to know here would be somebody like a Philip Melanchthon. You ever heard of Philip Melanchthon? He was kind of Martin Luther's right-hand man, right? Um, he was the, probably the preeminent uh, Protestant scholar of the Renaissance era. And um, he wrote a whole treatise on how we ought to study the Bible. And you know what he said? We really need to emphasize grammar, which for Melanchthon included the nuts and bolts about how languages operate, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, but it also included historical and cultural context, okay? So think about what this means. If you know anything about the, the, about the Middle Ages, there's this great, huge response, right, of distancing themselves away from, uh, from medieval modes of biblical interpretation with all of this allegory. And you're familiar with these, like, four modes of medieval uh, interpretation where there's just, like, this literal mode and there's allegorical mode and there's a tropographical mode and all these other kinds of things. And all of these things are very... Um, they're just a little bit esoteric, okay? They, they have a way of kind of moving away from the original intent of the text, right? And, uh, and making the text mean things that the human authors of the text could not possibly have foreseen or intended, okay? We can debate whether that's right or wrong. It's not my point to make that case. My point is simply to say that in the Renaissance, people are starting to move away from that, and they really want to get back in touch with the original meaning of the text. They want to know, what did Jeremiah mean? What did Isaiah mean? What did the author of the Psalms mean? What did did Joel, whoever, pick pick your biblical author, what did he mean when he wrote whatever it was that he wrote? So there's this very humanistic kind of turn in biblical studies, okay? There's this, um, this move towards humanism. They're not denying the divine inspiration of Scripture, What they're doing is saying, yes, God inspired Scripture, but he used real human beings in real historical and sociocultural contexts to produce these texts. And if we want to understand these texts well, we should try to understand those contexts as well. Does that make sense? So the human historical cultural setting of the texts, for the first time really, becomes very, very important in the task of biblical studies. For Philip Melanchthon and Erasmus and some of these others in the Renaissance era, that is really where interpretation belongs. Okay? You want to interpret a text well, you've got to read a text in its historical setting. Okay? So that's the first step. 
uh, the Renaissance. Fast forward about 200 years later. And those ideas of, of really emphasizing the, um, the human side of the production of biblical texts. Again, not denying that the texts were inspired by God, but very much emphasizing that these ins- texts that were inspired by God were produced by human beings in real times and places. That being so emphasized, well, that's continuing to pick up steam. Imagine how that's going to unfold in the era after the Enlightenment. Right? Um, the Enlightenment project, again, at the risk of oversimplifying things, is, uh, to my way of looking at it, largely a, a, a mechanism for, um, for, sh- for showing that so much of what we've attributed to the divine, we don't actually need to anymore. Right? Now we can show right, that, it's, that it's gravitational pull that makes the Earth go around the sun. Right? We can explain how weather patterns work. We can open up the human body and see how the body works. In fact, we can even heal it in some ways with surgery and all these other kinds of things. And so there's this increasing move towards secular humanism. Okay? So whereas the Christians in the Renaissance era were affirming the divine inspiration of Scripture, uh, and yet also giving, um, giving proper place to the human component in the authorship of Scripture, in the wake of the Enlightenment, uh, Nietzsche claims that God is dead and we have killed him, right? God is dead and we have killed him. So what we have now, in the wake of the Enlightenment, is this purely humanistic study of the Bible. Okay? And as that happens, just think about what some of the implications of that are going to be. There, um, the, the texts begin to be seen as purely human documents, Okay? that are motivated by politics, by economics, by greed, by theological propaganda, and all these other kinds of things. And people begin to, uh, to see them as um, power plays, okay? the biblical texts. It's just modes of executing and, and, and trying to, um, to get power. The key name to think of in this context, perhaps you've heard of him before, is a guy named Julius Wellhausen. Anybody heard of Wellhausen before? Okay. Wellhausen was a German Lutheran. Okay? in the mid-19th century. And he is famous. He was originally a New Testament scholar, but then he, he, uh, he made his way over uh, into the Old Testament. And he's famous above all for writing a book called Prolegomena to the History of Israel. Basically what he tries to do in this book, uh, and it's been exceedingly influential in biblical studies to this day. People have quibbled with this and that, refined this and that, but basically, this model more or less continues to carry the day in terms of like, secular Bible scholarship. Basically, what Valhausen did is he went to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and um, claimed that Moses really didn't have anything to do with the composition of the Pentateuch. Instead, what we have in the Pentateuch is a series of previously independent source texts that over the course of several hundred years, about 500 years or so, have been stitched together like a quilt okay, at various times along the way. And so that the, the Old Testament, in this case the Pentateuch, took shape over the course of about 500 years where first one source was stitched to another with a little bit of kind of uh, material added in between just to make, make sure they stick together properly. And then a little later, a third source was woven in with some new material just to make sure they stick together. And then a little later after that, a fourth source was woven in with some new material to make sure that it all holds together. What do we have here? We now have a very human sort of document, right, where uh, the texts are um, no longer being attributed to Moses, 
Uh, and they're, um, they're beginning to be seen largely as a human composition. Okay? And this, has, um, this raises a number of questions. Okay? Um, similar hypotheses have been floated from um, all, all kinds of books of the Bible. At about the same time, people begin to say, well, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is a composition of at least three different hands over the course of 200 years. Uh, the books of Joshua through 2 Kings, my own bread and butter, is, was written, was composed over the course of, uh, again, 400 or 500 years by, what, five or so different editors or redactors, right, where there's this kind of snowball t- uh, effect where the, the texts are just kind of growing organically as new stuff gets added in. Um, you can see what this does, right? You can see what this does. This is all, by the way, this is all the field of higher criticism, this quest to understand how the biblical text came together. That's what's, uh, what Bible scholars call higher criticism. You can see what higher criticism does. It raises the question of which literary strands in the Bible or literary sources are useful for historical knowledge. Right? It raises the question of why did the text get, uh, take on the shape as we have them now? And like, what motivated the people that were involved in that to make the contributions that they made? Okay? To, to put things together in the way that they did. So it raises the question of which literary strands or sources are useful for historical knowledge? Which literary sources or which parts of the Bible that have been put together in this way, uh, if any, speak accurately about the past? Right? This becomes one of the questions that people are asking. If uh, the Bible is no longer, or the Pentateuch in particular, is no longer understood as just like kind of text that just sort of fell from heaven, right? And it's now being seen as a sort of humanish composition. It raises these questions about, well, what, the, what then is its nature? Um, another question is, what are the political, theological, cultural motivations that prompted the scribes to compose their various texts and sources and to arrange them and compile them in the ways that they did? So for secular scholars... Here we enter archaeology. This is all happening in the mid-19th century. For secular scholars, archaeology becomes a way of adding more data to these kinds of questions. Secular scholars want to go to archaeology to say, well, can we find evidence that this particular part of of the Old Testament was written in this time, or that part of the Old Testament was written in this time? Which ones are early and which ones are late? Can we map the cultural world of this particular part of the Old Testament onto a certain century and that part of the Old Testament onto another century? Can we, can we try to like allocate these things on a timeline? Can we plot them out on a timeline? So that becomes a question for a lot of secular scholars. What becomes the question for Christians, do you think? Okay, I'll give it to you. For Christians, the question becomes, well, is the Bible reliable, right? If it's so, if it's so deeply entrenched uh, in this like kind of human process, is the Bible trustworthy? Which parts of the Bible are trustworthy? How can we know? And, um, and can we use archaeology as a way of gauging that question? Okay? So there, archaeology enters the conversation. It's in the middle of all of these kinds of questions that are being posed by higher criticism about how did the Bible come together and is it reliable historically that, um, that gives birth to the field of ancient Near Eastern archaeology or more specifically, biblical archaeology. And so from the beginning, Near Eastern archaeology was born, if not exclusively, then at least largely as a means by which scholars could shed light on the Bible 
particularly as they explored the question of whether the Bible is reliable. Okay. Um, questions so far? That's a good place for me to, to, add, to pause and to see if you're tracking with me. That's a big, big, big picture overview of higher criticism and some of the questions that were afoot in the wake of the enlightenment within the field of biblical studies. But you basically get the, the general idea of what I'm trying to say. Am I going too fast? Yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. The question is, was there a tension, a conflict between Christians on one hand and, uh, and people operating more perhaps in a, in a secular humanist or an enlightenment kind of a mentality as it related to, the, to their approach to the biblical text? Uh, certainly there were academic disagreements, yes. Um, and, and it should also be added that Christians were not the only ones uh, it, it, uh, in the conversation. In fact, I, I might submit that the best defense of, uh, of a solid doctrine of Scripture actually came from certain Jewish scholars. Who, who also took this question very, very seriously. Um, were there archaeologists that were differing over, over what they expected to find? Yeah. Um, yeah, although I think at the, at, at, at the early stage, I think that there, my sense is that there was less, um, let me put it differently. I think my sense is that at the early stage of archaeological excavation in the Near East, that there was generally just an open mind uh, at least among secular scholars as to what they, were, they would find. I don't, I don't think necessarily that they went into the field looking to prove the Bible wrong. Okay. Um, that, would, that just would not be good scholarship. Um, on the other hand, there certainly were Christian scholars, and, and, and I could pull out books and show you like, quotes where people are doing this. There certainly were Christian scholars who went into the field with the expectation that they would prove the Bible right. Does that make sense? Um, and that's for obvious reasons, right? They're affirming the, the inerrancy of Scripture and all these kinds of things. And so they're, they're, taking, their, they're, they're taking their faith into the field with the Bible in one hand and the shovel in the other. And they, they, they know what they expect to find, right? They're very confident they're going to find what they think they will find. Right? Um, does, that, does that answer your question? Yeah. No, I think cognitive dissonance is certainly a uh, subject Yes. Yes. In fact, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, one of the one of the questions I think is worth putting on the table, even if only indirectly, is to say, well, how are there any any contemporary parallels to a situation like this? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Okay. Let me summarize what I've tried to say to this point, and then I want to switch gears and talk about this question of reliability. Um, what I'm trying to say is that the modern era, going back to the Renaissance, ushered in a humanistic wave. This put the focus of biblical study on the human authors. The human role in the production of Scripture, uh, and also their various historical and cultural settings. Fast forwarding in time, that focus on the human role gave birth to higher criticism, which in various ways has called the Bible's historical testimony into question. With that in play, people then sought ways to investigate the Bible's historicity, its, uh, its accuracy with regard to history, from sources other than the biblical text itself. And so they turned to the earth, quite literally, to see what they might find there. And so biblical archaeology was born largely, if not entirely, from a quest to demonstrate either the Bible's reliability or else to get a sense for whether the Bible was reliable historically. Okay. That, of course, gives rise to a major question, which I'm not going to answer right now, which is, how did it go? <laughs> what did archaeology show? Um, that's perhaps a question for tomorrow. Uh, but for now, I'd like to switch gears to the second question. How am I doing on time? I, I forgot to look. Okay. 
Um, just tell me if I need to just wrap up, okay? I forgot to see what I can't. I don't have a clock. I don't. I'm just. I'm living in. I'm living in a fantasy. Just like just timeless. Once upon a timeline right now. Uh, okay. On the issue of reliability. Um, I, I want to start by saying, uh, as a as a Bible scholar, I'm I'm afraid that what you might have taken away from the conversation I just walked us through is that I think higher criticism is just dumb. And that all the questions they ask and all the things they see are just godless and faithless and full of apostasy. I don't, okay? I actually think that they're, they're trying to read the text carefully and they see things in the text and they're doing their best to be uh, reasonable and thoughtful. Um, I, I don't think they're wrong to see in the biblical text complexity when it comes to compositional history of the text and all these other kinds of things. What I do think they're wrong, and sometimes I've been guilty of this myself, is I, the way that they're wrong is the confidence with which they can trace out some of these kinds of questions, right? We can't know the shape of text that we don't even have anymore, right? So there's a little bit of arrogance that might go into that. But the big picture questions that they're trying to ask, which is, how did the Bible that we have come into its current shape? That's not a bad question to ask, okay? There might be bad answers to it, but it's not a bad question, okay? Um, What I want to try to emphasize now is that none of this stuff, in my estimation, this is exceedingly important to me, none of this stuff that I've been talking about with respect to questions of who wrote the Bible and when and how and how many hands of authorship were involved in it, none of that stuff, in my mind, really touches all that directly on the question of whether Scripture is reliable. So let me put it this way. If I could rewind the clock 200 years, 150 years, I'm bad at math, so I want to go back to 1860, however many years ago that is, okay? And uh, if I could give a talk, this is a little presumptuous what I'm about to say, so just bear with me. I don't think I'm this arrogant, but correct me if I'm wrong about that. If I could give a talk at an academic conference in 1860, what I would like to do with that talk at an academic conference in 1860 is just pump the brakes and say, wait a second, Wait a second, dear friends, in the Bible scholarship world, we don't need to ask the question of whether the Bible is reliable. We know that the Bible is reliable. Archaeology cannot tell us whether the Bible is reliable, and we don't need it to tell us whether the Bible is reliable. How do we know that the Bible is reliable? The one who inspired it is himself supremely reliable. Right? The divine author of Scripture is himself supremely reliable. He is himself supremely true, supremely trustworthy, supremely honest. He does not lie. So I don't need some pot in the ground or some, I don't know, fortress that we might uncover at this or that site to prove to me that the Bible is reliable. Okay? I just don't need that. For me, the reliability of Scripture isn't a, qu- a question that archaeology can answer. It can speak to it in a sort of roundabout way, but for me, the question of the reliability of Scripture is a faith claim. It's a theological claim anchored in who I understand the divine author of Scripture to be. Does that make sense? So if I could rewind wherever we are to back to 1860, I would want to give like a really short paper just making that claim. Okay? Wait a, wait a second, dear brothers, dear sisters in biblical studies. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't go dig. By all means, let's go have our fun in the sun. It's a really great time. We're going to find a lot of cool stuff, and it's going to be really helpful for helping us understand the Bible. But let's not go dig with this question of, is the Bible reliable? I am convinced the Bible is reliable because the God who gave us the the Bible does not lie. He is supremely true and trustworthy. Indeed, he is himself truth. Right? So, um, I think it's really, really important to emphasize that uh, all these questions about, um, about higher criticism and how the Bible took its shape does not undercut, for me, in any way, shape, form, or fashion, does not undercut the authority of Scripture or the inspiration of Scripture or even the inerrancy of Scripture. Okay? Why? First, because there's absolutely no reason, no reason, that God, in all of his sovereignty and goodness and wisdom, could not have inspired however many individuals he wanted to give us the text that he wanted us to have. Okay? Every single person, I think, every single person uh, from antiquity all the way up through, uh, through the final shape of the text, I think, had the Holy Spirit inspire them and lead them along to give us the biblical text that God wanted the church to have. So none of these questions about authorship and dating of text and source, none of that stuff. I mean, it's all interesting, but none of it for me touches on the question of inerrancy or authority of Scripture. Uh, And that's because of God's sovereignty. I've never found a question in biblical studies that God's sovereignty isn't big enough to handle. Second, uh, and this is the point that I've already made. The second reason why these questions about composition history and higher criticism and stuff don't undercut the authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of Scripture is simply because we know where the reliability of Scripture comes from. So forgive me for repeating this point. It's just important. Scripture's authority, inspiration, inerrancy, truthfulness, reliability is not contingent on what we see in a dig. Okay? Nor is it contingent on any interpreter. These things are simply matters of God's own trustworthiness. Hear me say it boldly. We know that Scripture is reliable, trustworthy, inerrant. Pick your favorite word. Okay? Because God is himself supremely reliable and trustworthy. God is himself supreme truth. Okay? Here's a way of putting it uh, sort of visually. When it comes to the question of Scripture's reliability, the question we need to ask is, is this a bottom-up thing or a top-down thing? Is Scripture reliable from the bottom up? In other words, like we literally need to go down into the earth and dig stuff up and ask the question of whether Scripture is reliable? Or is it a top-down thing? We know that it's reliable because God himself inspired it with his Holy Spirit. Right? For me, it's reliable because it's a top-down thing. Okay. Now, if archaeology can't speak to the question of whether the text is reliable... That doesn't mean, of course, that archaeology has nothing to contribute. It reframes what archaeology can contribute. Does that make sense? It it puts archaeology in its proper place, which is really where archaeology is going to flourish. In that that sense, it's like people. People really only flourish when they're in their proper places. Um, If archaeology cannot tell us, if it cannot answer the question of whether Scripture is reliable... I do think it can tell us how Scripture is reliable. Okay? It can help us understand um, the ways in which Scripture is reliable and, um, 
and, and the manners in which it's reliable. But that's not the same thing. Okay? I'm not out to ask the question from archaeology, is Scripture inerrant? Archaeology can't answer that question for me. What it might do is help me understand how Scripture is inerrant. Does that make sense? You see the difference there? What I say to my students, yes, Dr. Wiley, I see the difference, or no, Dr. Wiley, you have totally lost me. With okay, okay. And this brings me finally to the last section. Unless, uh, well, I'll let you decide if I, should, if I should go on to my fourth or just save it for tomorrow. The last thing I'd like to do tonight, uh, potentially the last, maybe it's the second to last, we'll see. <laughs> I'm very, very bad at organizing. Okay? You probably have already noticed that. So. Pray for me. Pray for my students. They're the ones that are the victims of this every day. Um, last thing I'd like to do tonight is to raise the question of what is archaeology good for? And what is archaeology good for? Um, let me start this last section by emphasizing as firmly as I can what archaeology is not good for. When you leave tomorrow night, I think my last talk's at 7 o'clock, so at 8 o'clock tomorrow night, you will have heard from me for the last time, at least for now. I hope that you walk away knowing this, plus several other things that are probably more I find than this, God willing, but also this. Namely, that archaeology does not and cannot prove the Bible right or wrong. It just can't, okay? Archaeology cannot prove the Bible right or wrong. Um, why? Um, because archaeology can't speak directly uh, to certain questions that we might have, right? It can't prove or disprove certain historical questions that we might have. It can't prove whether Moses wrote the Pentateuch, a question I raised a little while ago. It just can't speak to that, okay? It can't speak to whether Jonah really was swallowed up by a whale. Archaeology has nothing really to contribute to that particular question. It has questions, it has something to contribute to the understanding of the book of Jonah, to be sure, right? In terms of like, what did Assyria mean to Jonah such that it made him want to flee to Tarshish, right? He hated those people. And archaeology can help us understand Jonah's motive for wanting to not go to Tarshish, to not want to go to Nineveh. But it can't answer this question of whether Jonah was swallowed up and then spit out by a whale, okay? Uh, archaeology cannot prove whether the battle of David and Goliath happened in exactly the way that 1 Samuel 17 said it did, Okay? We have no way from archaeology of like reconstructing the dialogue between Goliath and David and the taunts that they exchange. Okay? There's like all kinds of stuff that archaeology just simply cannot speak to. Okay? It's not like somewhere in the Ayla Valley, which I'll show you a picture of tomorrow, there's like some stone etched in like Paleo-Hebrew letters from around like 1000 BC or 980 BC with like a script, you know, and then David said, and then Goliath said, and then David said, and then it's signed on this day and this year, right? We just don't have any of that kind of stuff. Okay? There's no bathroom stalls that say Moses was here or Abraham was here or none of this kind of stuff, right? Uh, archaeology cannot speak to any of Jesus's miracles, right? These, these are things that archaeology, we just can't look to archaeology for. Uh, additionally, there are all kinds of things in the Bible uh, that, that the Bible speaks, uh, I'm sorry, there are all kinds of things in the Bible uh, that archaeology can't address. Um, uh, and a lot of stuff in the Bible has nothing to do with stuff that even touches on archaeology. Like the Ten Commandments, the, the, the archaeology can't really tell us whether Moses smashed tablets and then got a new set. Uh, 
Archaeology can't tell us whether David wrote the Psalms, really. Right? There's just all these questions that archaeology can't address. Okay? Um, then there's more reasons why archaeology can't prove the Bible or disprove it. Um, we have to always, always, always exercise intellectual humility here. Despite nearly, what, 160 years, 170 years, roughly, a very extensive excavation in Israel and the ancient Near East, we still need to understand that only a fraction of what could be excavated has been excavated. Okay? And so we simply do not know what we do not know. Okay? We don't know what more data lies on earth or someday to be discovered or lost to history never to be discovered. Right? We simply don't know what we don't know. We always have, at best, a very partial picture from archaeology. Okay? Um, and that calls for intellectual humility. We don't know what evidence is missing, either because it never existed or it does exist in the ground but hasn't yet been found, or it did exist but cannot be found because it's been destroyed. We'll never get it. Okay? So for that reason, archaeology can't prove or disprove the Bible. Um, and we also need to remember that absence of evidence is not the same thing as evidence for absence, evidence of absence, right? The fact that we don't have evidence for this or that event or this or that person or whatever doesn't mean that it didn't actually happen or that person never existed, okay? Uh, and there are cases like that in the Bible, right? Um, despite 160-some years of extensive excavation in Israel, we do not, to my knowledge, have a single extra-biblical uh, um, um, artifact that proves that Solomon existed. Okay? Doesn't mean he didn't exist, it just means we haven't found the proof of it. Right? We do know that David existed. Right? We have texts that talk about the house of David from a very early time. I think the book of Samuel itself, in its own way, basically proves that David existed because there's stuff in it you wouldn't invent, like getting in cahoots with the Philistines. Right? That's just not the kind of story you would invent if you were trying to make up this like, great founding monarch, right? This is the kind of stuff that it happened in history, and you had to account for it. So uh, I'm certain that David existed, okay? Solomon, I'm pretty certain he existed. But the fact that we don't have evidence from outside the Bible, that can't mean that he didn't, right? So we just have to have intellectual humility here. Okay, so there are all kinds of reasons why archaeology can't prove the Bible or disprove it, which raises the question, what can archaeology do? What can archaeology do? What's it good for? I almost titled this lecture, What is Archaeology Good For? Turns out I gave that to the lecture for tomorrow morning. Three things that archaeology can do. Okay, and then again, remember, tomorrow, in my three sessions tomorrow, I'm going to take each of these three things and then unpack them uh, in, a whole, in a whole lecture. God willing. Three things archaeology can do. First, Provide context. They're all C's. It's a nice Baptist-y thing I did there, right? I got, a three, I got a three C alliteration for you here, right? Getting back in touch with my low church roots here, okay? Context. Archaeology can shed very illuminating light on the cultural context of the biblical world, okay? So archaeology can tell us all kinds of things about how people built their houses, how they ate, how they cooked, how they dressed, who they traded with, how they got around and traveled, and all these other different kinds of things. Uh, just daily life kinds of things, right? How they worshipped, whom they worshipped, all kinds of stuff. Okay? So archaeology is just useful for, uh, for telling us about daily life in the ancient world. A really great way to just visualize this very uh, tangibly would be to say, if you came to my house, okay, 
and you started digging through my kitchen trash can, you would just like that learn all kinds of stuff about me, right? You'd learn that my house, we love watermelon. I hope we took it out, <laughs> right? We eat a lot of watermelon. You could see receipts and see the kind of stuff we buy and how much we pay for it and where are the stores that we go. And from there, you could track down, well, where did they get those stuff, that, that stuff that they bought at Target or wherever? Or, oh, they bought bananas in Huntington, West Virginia in September? Well, that says a lot about a global economy, doesn't it? Because we don't grow bananas in Huntington, right? So you can learn a lot about just like daily life. Right? Just by going through my trash can, which is basically what archaeologists do. Right? They dig up a lot of just junk. Okay? Um, second thing. So the first thing is context. The first thing that archaeology can give us is context for studying the biblical world. The second thing, and I confess I, I wavered on this point just a little bit, but I'm going to go with it. Confirmation. Not the sacramental act. Okay? Confirmation in the sense that like, it, it can actually tell us... Um, or at least make it very, very plausible for us to think that, that many of the things that the Bible says happened actually did happen, okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to contradict what I said a minute ago about the Bible not proving, I'm sorry, about archaeology not proving the Bible, okay? It still doesn't do that. But I'm going to show you uh, at least one example tomorrow with respect to the Philistines, um, where the biblical record very, very, very nicely matches um, the archaeological record on questions having to do with Philistine identity and history. And that is far from the only uh, case in which that happens. Okay? So we can, in a number of cases, use archaeology to confirm uh, events that the Bible narrates, okay? especially battles, like key, key uh, destructive events and, and those kinds of things. Um, archaeology can speak to those things. Last one. Okay, the first one is context. The second one is confirmation. The third one, third C, clarification. Clarification. Um, and here again, this is the question that I mentioned, uh, uh, or the sort of nuance that I mentioned a little while ago, which is that while archaeology does not and cannot tell us, um, does not tell us whether the Bible is reliable or we don't need it to, it can give us information that helps us understand how the Bible is reliable, okay? um, how the Bible speaks truthfully in its historical setting. Um, Another way of getting at it is that archaeology can help us with questions like genre and original authorial intent insofar as we can reconstruct those things. And so in the last session tomorrow, I'm going to be honest with you, it's the one that I'm the most excited about. Um, I want to discuss uh, the archaeology of religion in ancient Israel. Uh, say a few things about what can we tell about ancient Israelite religion on the basis of archaeology and extra-biblical texts, texts, other texts that are not in the Bible from the ancient world. Uh, and then I want to draw on that information about archaeology in ancient Canaan and Israel and Judah uh, to help us read a psalm in a way that I suspect you perhaps have never read it before. Okay? Uh, so, context, confirmation, clarification. Okay? That's what I see archaeology being good for. Okay. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as our prayer book uh, instructs us, uh, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. I pray, Father, that you would fill each of us with a deep, deep gratitude for your word and also for a love for it. Give us a hunger so that we might daily open your word and feast on it. Lord, we pray that you would equip us to divide your word properly to understand it, to apply it. 
Give us your spirit, dear Lord, and your grace that we might be not only hearers of your word, but also doers of it. I want to pray again, Lord, over our time uh, this evening and tomorrow that uh, you would use it to our edification, uh, to our good, to our, um, our blessing. Uh, help us to encourage one another and to spur one another on to, to well-ordered loves. Send us your Holy Spirit, Lord. Be with us through the hours of the coming night. Send your angels to watch over us and to keep us from all the schemes of the evil one. Bring us back, Lord, in your grace and in your fatherly goodness to this place tomorrow morning where we might enjoy each other once again through the day tomorrow. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.